You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 1889, Montevideo, Uruguay. Football. In London, it is Queen Victoria's 17th birthday. On the banks of the River Plata, they celebrate it with their feet. The Buenos Aires and Montevideo teams vie for the ball on the little Blanqueta field under the disdainful scrutiny of the Queen. At the center of the grandstand, between flags, hangs a portrait of this mistress of the world's seas and a good part of its lands. Buenos Aires wins 3-0. There are no dead to mourn, although the penalty has not yet been invented, and anyone approaching the enemy goal risks his life. To get a close shot at the goal, one must penetrate an avalanche of legs that shoot out like axes, and every match is a battle requiring bones of steel. Eduardo Galliano from the excellent Faces and Masks. The recent podcast that I did on Argentina and the 1978 World Cup was informed by the time of season it is. The World Cup only comes once every four years, and we're experiencing a great one as I record this uh, in 78. It was the Netherlands and Argentina, as we discussed in the last cast, and it was being held, so the home team was winning. But unfortunately for the dictatorship in that country to show off a bit and even to the point we now know wasn't generally known at the time, even to the point of intimidating prisoners as to, hey, look, you are being forgotten. No one cares about you. Look at all these Argentinians cheering for the regime. They don't care that you're in prison, etc. You know, it wasn't my favorite podcast episode to record of all time it's a it was a very difficult subject and i think i was even being kind of censored in how much i described the bad things i just you know briefly referenced people being intimidated or tortured like things like that Uh, without getting into a lot of detail you should amp up what you're thinking about when you're thinking about torture. This isn't like the waterboarding type thing. This is involving cattle prods and, in some cases, surgeries and things like this, and psychological intimidation. They were very bad people. There were connections with uh, Nazis. That's something that I don't think gets enough discussion, and I tried to bring that up in the cast. There were several prisoners who noticed that either they were playing uh, Hitler in the background, if the person was Jewish, or there was a big swastika. You know, just anything to degrade and dehumanize the subjects of their torture and intimidation. One newspaper editor who was 
we referenced. He was the editor of the La Prenza. It was a really big paper. When he was brought in, uh, he was questioned as to if he was a Zionist or not. And he believes his life was only spared because they wanted uh, the Argentine junta to put a Zionist on trial. So you're talking about a country that has neo-Nazis in its midst. And, you know, I couldn't dwell on it in the regular cast. There's just a limited amount of time and scope. But we referenced the black bands that were on the World Cup goal. And I didn't get the chance to finish the story. As you could probably surmise, the black bands that were on each goalpost in the 1978 Argentina final were there as a remembrance to the victims. And then you're probably going to say, but this is a repressive country. How did they allow that to happen? Well, the groundskeeper, and this is someone who had to be, wasn't talking about it at the time or anywhere near at the time. 30 years later, he's interviewed and come to find that um, the groundskeeper, they had many friends who had been disappeared. Uh, you know, people knew generally in Buenos Aires what was going on. And they looked for a way. They have this big TV event. What can they do as the grounds crew? They thought about writing something in the grass. But they said, they're just going to take us and we're going to be on a plane over the Atlantic if we do that. So they put the black stripes or they look like armbands on either end of the goalposts. And... One of the things about the story is that as much as the dictators wanted to use football to their advantage politically to win over the populace, to make the regime seem popular, they didn't really know anything about soccer whatsoever. These were military generals spend their time with that. Videla, as far as they knew, never watched a game. In fact, the World Cup, when he's smiling there after the victory, most people say that's the only time they ever saw him smile. They know nothing about soccer. So what the groundskeepers were able to convince the military attache that was in charge of running this whole World Cup was that putting the black on either side of the goal was traditional. Whereas these new modern goals um, that are all white on either side of the poles, you know, that's the new tradition. But the, the old tradition, the old way to do it, the proper way is to put black on either side. You know, just like the soccer ball. And they were able to convince the dictators that this was the, the right way to go and never mentioned a word that it was in remembrance of anything. And it worked. And all of the World Cup games featured uh, these uh, type of armbands. Well, the dictatorship went for anything traditional. What I like about the story, and the, the disappeared were remembered. They were remembered. And they were remembered by a lot of journalists and by the mothers of the disappeared in the playa. And as bad as things were and had been already, they would get better. We talked about the hunter. We talked about its past. And the hunter's going to be gone by 1983. So in years, it's relatively short compared to other Latin American dictatorships. The, the Chilean dictatorship lasts longer. So it's 75 to 1983. But in those eight years, there was an awful lot of death and torture. So it's, you know, but by 83, we're seeing it go away. There are actually three different juntas. That's why very often, you know, in Chile, you refer to Pinochet. Um, in Argentina, um, in Argentina, you know, Videla is the main one, the first one and the most gruesome, the most vicious of the 
dictators, but there are actually three, because even though we're talking about interjunta politics, strangely, um, there's three different juntas. And I think it's not that strange. Basically, you're talking about a country with rampant inflation, a bad economy, and even a junta at some point is is responsible. And so there's coups within the coup. And there's three different dictators that end up ruling. One of them even tries to be a little bit uh, reform-minded. Um, initially, they're going to start doing these really aggressive, like Milton Friedman-type private sector things with the pension and the health care and things like that. This is what was implemented in Chile. And after bad experiences with it, it you know, People aren't happy. Obviously, they can't protest because they know what will happen to them, but they're still not happy, and there are complaints, and, you know, there's a coup within the coup. And then there's a third coup when that reforming dictator of sorts gets a little bit too haughty, and then the the last one, Galateri, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, is the final dictator of Argentina who gets the country to the Falkland Islands War after the perceived as a loss there. They didn't get the islands back. Did some sunk a couple British ships, which wasn't nothing, but um, against a power like that, but uh, lost the Falkland Islands. And after some, a war has a way of spreading. And after some of the news from foreign outlets does reach Argentina about how many lives were lost and the stupid decisions that were made, the junta is toppled. Most of the worst part of the killing occurs between the time of the junta taking over in 75 and in fact meant much of it in like the first couple of months through 76 through 77 and into 78 while the world cup is going on it does seem to die down 79 to 83 but it doesn't mean it stops in 83 hunt is floundering and the, the, the military wants a way out and a human rights lawyer who's enormously popular for having brought forward the cases of, of families with disappeared relatives, uh, is made president of Argentina. But even he has some problems. The new democracy is not perfect. There's still the same economic issues. They're always dealing with inflation. And he's forced, because he can't totally control the military still, he's forced to end. They do something called the full stop which ends the prosecutions of the junta. So only the very top leaders of the junta are prosecuted at all. His successor, Carlos Mendem, pardons General Videla in a sign of amnesty. And people are outraged, of course. In recent times, when documents that demonstrate um, through the Chilean connection, all right, the, the U.S. is forced to release um, documents about the involvement with the CIA in Chile. And, and when some of these start coming out and reaching Argentina, you, you can see that the U.S. has also been supportive to the Argentine junta. And this is going to cause outrage in the country. And it's that CIA connection that leads the president to overrule. And then the Supreme Court finds the pardons unconstitutional and the Congress votes to allow prosecutions now of the general. So I bring that up because um, even as I was visiting the Plaza de Maya in uh, my own, in um, 2010, uh, years after this dictatorship, um, not everyone had even begun their prosecutions. So the dictator Videla dies in 2016, and he was um, serving a sentence at that time. 
So I didn't get a chance to mention that you know, in the 1978 World Cup game, uh, Henry Kissinger is sitting there as the guest of the dictators of Argentina. He was supportive of the coup. He was supportive of Pinochet in Chile, as was Nixon, supportive of the Brazilian dictatorship, anything to put a wedge between Latin America and the communists. And the junta, if anything, was anti-communist. They were literally killing uh, anyone who was communist at all in the country or even spread a leaflet about Marx. Certainly with Pinochet, there was CIA involvement at minimum in alienating Using U.S. support, U.S. money, anyone who supported the Allende government before Pinochet and making it easy for the government to be toppled. Um, we still don't know the full extent of everything. With the Junta, it looks like they came to power originally, but there's obviously training, machinery, money that they receive from the United States. Jimmy Carter, after the problems with uh, Nicaragua, after Nicaragua in Somoza there is overthrown and there's a communist government that comes to power and Jimmy Carter is facing political problems with it. He's forced to as well deal with the Argentinians, however reluctant he is. Reagan comes into office with the full-throated support for the Argentine junta. It's only the Fal Falkland Islands War where the Argentine junta did the one thing they couldn't do uh, with the Reagan administration and that's launch a war against our greatest ally, Britain, particularly with Margaret Thatcher, who had a great relationship with Ronald Reagan there. So they crossed the Reagan administration there. But in every other way, the United States, particularly ambassador to the UN, Jean Kirkpatrick, is supporting that junta. And one of the things that she makes these claims, and this was kind of her stock and trade, that it's better to deal with dictators than to deal with communists. One of the points that she makes is that, well, at least the traditional autocrats are more respectful of traditional values than these new communism, you know, communists who are going to come and, and upend the whole system. You know, for instance, they're going to respect the family. And Robert Cox, the journalist who we talked about, and other newspaper publishers who were imprisoned and victims tell stories of families being tortured together they would often pick up members of the of an entire family because the goal of the junta was actually elimination of subversives they weren't respecting any family boundaries whatsoever if someone was considered in their minds to be communist they were subhuman obviously there's some shame with the united states in the story i think just in the scope of talking about a soccer event and the junta and that disappeared and explaining it and things like that. You know, we can't get into everything. But there certainly was a shameful record involving the United States. However, it's also not over in other ways. Um, the most recent government, since Christina Churchner and her husband, Nestor Churcher, kind of shared the presidency, uh, she ran right after him. Uh, he he died in 2010, and she just continued as president and was reelected. Um, they take up kind of the banner of Juan Perón, the populist banner. They had support among the very poor in Buenos Aires neighborhoods, in the, in the shanty towns. They expose the involvement of the United States. They're extremely anti-American. There's numerous. I, I can recall personally being affected that in Argentina, when you arrive as a or, or this maybe used to be the case, uh, as a U.S. citizen, you had to pay a $100 fee to get into the country. And there's also numerous trade embargoes. They don't, 
You know, we don't trade back and forth with the meat products or many things like that. They're actually one of the countries seeking to reduce the relationship with the United States during the policies of the Kirchner. So this is a this is a political force. Now, this would be a political force on the left. And they were keen to use the documentation of the CIA involvement with the junta and to use the crimes of the junta and to showcase the victims of the junta for the for political purposes and um you know they are going to be the ones that make the pardons of the dictators unconstitutional but you know there's an open question there because the kirchners also are pretty well known to have been very corrupt. There's still a lot of cases ongoing. There's even a case involving a prosecutor that died that's very mysterious that was about to put charges up against the former president. And that's still all. You know, in fact, one of the people who is a son of a journalist that was imprisoned and a prominent person, a victim of the junta, is indeed um, someone who's now under investigation for corruption. So it's kind of like you know, new people took over the government. They made reforms in this area. They weren't a hunt anymore. They weren't uh, killing people, although there is, is still violence. But were the people better? Because there's definitely allegations of corruption and any argument that one would make with the Kirchners would, it would just come back that you're, you know, part of an American plot or something like that. There's one more story that we didn't get into, and that's that you did have people who were participating in the crimes of the junta. There's a one particular police chief that was very notorious, but known by all the survivors. And he was not arrested, at least until very recently. And he was living in Recoleta, which is a nice neighborhood in Buenos Aires, uh, serving out his career. Very often, people who had suffered in these prisons, if they survived, would then run into their torturers and policemen uh, on the street. Um, there, there's, and all the things you can imagine happened. They either shouted at them or in some cases there was a reconciliation or there was one case where a widow had chased down a police officer that she knew had some involvement. Uh, so this is all happening in the city. You know, the, the crime happened in the city. The people are still living in the city. Most of them, other than the really high officials were not prosecuted. So it's a very interesting situation. This is all to to give you some of the fabric of all the stuff that couldn't make it into the podcast. But there is one interesting story that in 2007, a witness who had been in one of these prisons at the Naval Mechanics School and had been in the concentration camp and tortured was testifying against this police chief and he was disappeared, not in 1978, but in 2007. And so there still was some active elements. There still are some active elements in politics and crimes being committed um, you know, by this group, you know, trying to protect themselves where they're able to. Of course, it got a lot of attention. There was outrage and everything like that. So we didn't get a chance to talk about that story. Uh, in a recent episode, I spoke with Dr. Paul Cartledge of the University of Cambridge about Greek democracy. My feeling is that um, Greek democracy is not held in high value in America as maybe Roman-style republicanism, you know, representation. Um, I like the concepts we talked about, about random civic participation, 
outside of juries. We don't really have that as part of our American system. So I thought it was a big takeaway from what Dr. Cartledge was saying, you know, and I think another big question is, do we take democracy in vain? And, you know, have we created something that's getting farther and farther away? The amount of representatives that we have versus people farther and farther away from real democracy, but yet using the name of democracy. And is that the reason that democracy is under siege? Because we don't have a full democracy. And that's the, I think, the takeaway from, from was a long interview with a lot of parts and a lot of uh, Greek words and things like that. Since I last produced this podcast episode about soccer and repression in Argentina, a few more layers of the story have become clearer, partially because I've researched them more since 2018 when the last cast occurred. Some events are still happening now. This is not something that just ended in the 70s. In the country of Argentina, it's a very live movement. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We spoke about the connection between Nazism and anti-Semitism and the Argentine junta. There is definitely more specific and public truth about the killings that the Argentine Junta committed, as we learned due to CIA records that were released during the tail end of the Obama administration, that the CIA had knowledge of people who were killed by the junta for the purpose of, they said, of course, for restricting communism. There's a lot going on. I mean, the son of the dictators on Facebook making statements that are very defending his father, the Della, the general, saying that people are just over-obsessing for political reasons with the disappearances and the things that had happened. And so it's a very live debate. You have in Brazil, a President Bolsonaro called on the armed forces to commemorate Brazil's 1964 coup, which also installed a repressive military dictatorship. That one lasted for 21 years. And yes, there were disappearances and attacks. We're going to get into, there were also those in Chile. And in talking about um, Argentina, 
four years ago. I talked about that country because I had some familiarity with it, but also because the World Cup soccer event was there during the dictatorship. But I will say there's also another reason. Latin America was in pretty bad shape democratically during this period that we're talking about. And the United States, as seen again and again, was not helpful in that respect, to say the least. But there is a case for Argentina being actually the worst. It's the latest junta. It occurs last in terms of the actual coup event. It's the later 70s. It seems like they gained knowledge from all of the others, and it is just demonstrably worse in terms of the sheer number of victims and what they were doing. But Brazil had a pretty bad one, and to just joke about it or to say like, hey, we should celebrate the coup and what the military did, um, it's pretty alarming. Peter Kornbluth at the National Security Archive, an analyst, said, the documents released by the CIA about the Argentine junta remind us of the ugly reality of military coups and the regimes that followed. Access to them is the strongest bulwark against the reactionary revisionism that is attempting to paint a pretty picture of the military regimes in the southern cone. I couldn't agree more. Obviously, anyone who has a podcast, I mean, looks at history and does it the right way, knowing is better. Knowing tells us what not to do. There was a lot of pretty pictures painted both at the time of the various juntas in Latin America. And now, as we look back, those pictures turned out to be deadly. The stories that people were told were turned out to be deadly. You know, Pinochet in Chile presents himself as a kind of folk hero, as a figure from Chile's original revolution bringing order back. The junta presented themselves as just the military restoring the country from subversives, constantly talking about subversives. These subversives were everywhere. And now, absent what they did afterwards, you could make a case if they simply came to power and were, you know, um, beating the Communist Party in elections, say, or making running on a platform that the Argentina was going to be separate from the Soviet Union, say, changing foreign policy, or even if there was a junta that simply did that, you could make that case that, okay, this was beneficial. But they did much more than that. And subversives, the the term became anything from a person that was actually a communist trying to, say, link up the country with the Soviet Union to somebody who was just a worker complained about working conditions. There was a CDC, a detention center in the Ford plant in Argentina. Um, in some cases, people that were captured, the Argentine ambassador to Venezuela, for instance, captured, tortured, detained to get ransom money from the family. So it just became a near criminal enterprise by the time you, in the sheer number of things, and by the time you um, round it out. It's something we need to know more about. And I think as Americans, as United States Americans, I think it's pretty important to know more about Latin American history. And it's something I plan in the next couple of years to, to talk more about and research more. While an American did not perform torture as far as we know, military training, financial support went on while the brutal treatment of people as subhumans was known. And at least in one case, an American was flagged by the American government, or at least we think so. Why else would there need to be a memo in Spanish, an American file? 
I was really afraid that I would be dismembered, that I would go through further pain. That's Gwenda Batoli describing the use of an electroshock on her as her captors tortured her in an attempt to get information about associates. Gwenda Batoli was arrested aboard a bus in Rosario, Argentina for distributing a leaflet that was against the government. That was a criminal offense. She thought she'd get a slap on the wrist, a light sentence or something. She had no idea that she'd be tortured for five months, slapped in the face, blindfolded, stripped of her clothing, and attacked with an electric prod to elicit confessions about other people who made the leaflets, who else were distributing them. And this happened all around, and this is how the Hunter gained a lot of its victims. This is what makes it important to understand. There's this surprise factor. No one knew what was coming. Yes, um, I'm sure if you were on the left of politics and the right wing, the military seizes power, it's probably not going to be a good time for you, particularly politically. No one anticipated that there would be this attempt at extermination of political opponents. Researching more, I find that the Dirty War, the initial war in the north that the military conducted in a small region, that served as a beginning experiment for what they planned to do later, doing some disappearances, doing some death flights across the Atlantic Ocean with with insurgents there. They used all of those techniques that they learned on this small scale and applied it to the major cosmopolitan city uh, and very European-like, big connections with Europe, an international city of Buenos Aires, applied it to the city. I can just tell you in that, in the scope of that country, which had some military, it wasn't like it was a perfect democracy. It had military coups before, but in the scope of what they did, it was no different than like a dictator taking over and starting in New York. And um, it was shocking and surprised. That's why most of the killings we believe, this is the same with Pinochet in Chile, happen in the first year. Because after that, people are scared to death. There's still killings. There's still lots of things that happen. There are people that are that are disappeared right up to the point that the junta leaves. But um, most of it happens early on because people had simply had no idea. And they also had so many detainees after the first year that there, there were some limits there. Different from Miss Batoli as to other um, Argentines who was captured. She was a group. She was in a group called the Socialist Youth Alliance. She was very young. Is that she was an American. Um, and she had been under investigation by American law enforcement officials for her activism. Her husband was Argentinian and lived in, 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 in Argentina, and that's why she was there. The CIA files reveal that she had been under investigation, and there was a letter written in Spanish about her activities. There's no reason to write a letter in Spanish unless you're sharing that with Argentine officials. American victims are rare, but you look at other countries, there were Israelis that were victims of the junta, Swedes that were victims of the juntas. Italy has a large connection to Argentina. If you go to Buenos Aires, I, you almost have to consider that an Italian city. I mean, the people that live in the country know that. And there were a lot of victims for that reason. There's, um, in 1982, the Italian newspaper, Corriere della Sera, 
published a list of 297 Italians aged 17 to 29 who disappeared while in Argentina. In fact, the Argentine government is sending DNA kits to foreign capitals to see if anybody can trace relatives because people come from Argentina from all over the world. It's an immigrant country just like the United States. And so they're sending out DNA kits to see they have some bones, they have human materials, but they cannot trace it to people still. Bones can speak, so says Argentina's consul general in Rome. Look, the subject I'm talking about, there's no way to sugarcoat it. This was bad. If anything, I'm just skimming over over things. I mean, we talked about this in the in the episode in 2018. Azucena Villaflor, the first mother, the founder of the Mothers of the Disappeared, the Mothers of Plaza de Mayo, who stood outside, stood outside the government building and confronted the junta directly and said, we are mothers, we want to know the fate of your children. She was kidnapped and thrown into the Atlantic in December 1977. But her body washed up on a faraway beach. And, and it wasn't until 2003, the murder was certified, that they did DNA, they found where the police buried her. And she's been identified. 7,500 records were delivered to the Argentine government um, a few years back, in the last months of the Obama administration, declassified. And it just revealed the Cold War Intelligence Alliance known as Operation Condor, right? Ostensibly, the United States participating with Latin American com- countries to fight communism. But the awareness with the, re- with the, the activities is there. So the CIA knows what's going on with the junta. Do they know exactly everything? You know, the files aren't going to reveal that. The sheer number, the sheer number of cases and records make it clear that they had a pretty good idea and anybody sensible knew what was going on. Um, For instance, and there's many of these examples, the abduction and the assassination of Jesus Arias and Curciendo Hernandez, employees of the Cuban embassy in Buenos Aires. So they're Cubans in Buenos Aires. They vanish. August 9th, 1976. The AP receives an envelope that included the credentials of one of the men, along with the note that said, they deserted to enjoy the freedoms of the Western world. But they didn't. And American officials, according to the Condor documents, knew this. The Cubans were bundled into an ambulance as they were leaving work, sent to a notorious detention center operating out of a car mechanic shop and tortured for 48 hours. And they were dumped in the river. The Argentine ambassador to Venezuela we talked about, that's also in the Condor documents. So while we don't have Americans in there working with Videla or like that, the information is certainly there. The files show it. Um, the choice was made. Um, choose fighting communism over fighting repression of a people. Did they know everything? I still can't say that based on the information I have. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. 
tengo bien la esperanza cuando pienso en la otra estrella nunca es tarde me dice ella la paloma volará That's the song of Victor Jara. Vinceramos is a Chilean song written by Claudio Itura. It's sung by Victor Jara, a famous singer in Chile. He was not just a singer, he was involved in politics. The song means we shall prevail. Allende, the former president of Chile who was assassinated, famously said, there could be no revolution without song. This song was connected the revolutionary movement. It's a song of revolution, of belief in many things, and it's considered by Pinochet, the dictator that would take over Chile too, modern, too revolutionary. He antagonized conservatives. He released a comic song about a religious woman with a crush on a priest. The the tie with all of these juntas is very strong, fundamental Catholicism. That's not to say the Catholic Church supported the junta all the time. Churches were a refuge for many people hiding. But fundamentally, you're talking about conservative, old guard people. Jar was murdered. He was shot 40 times and left in a ditch. Uh, in this case... There was actually some justice, a Chilean army officer, Pedro Barrientos, who lived in the United States for more than two decades, sued by Jara's family under the Torture Victims Protection Act. I bring up these young people. The, the, the Chilean experience was as bad. I talked about Argentina in the last cast, but the Chilean experience was as, was as bad. Maybe the numbers not as much. They targeted young people. You're remember the times we're talking about. It's the 70s. You're coming off. The Vietnam War. And if you figure the hippie movement in the United States and all of the protests, and if the government started digging all of that up, and a few years later going back to those records and going after those people, that's what happened in various countries in Latin America. They're not targeting just older politicians, the opposite party. They're targeting specifically young people and activists. And Jara was a young singer. CIA also had ties to the Chilean coup, to Pinochet being in power and supporting that uh, coup. There was a break-off of sorts after the assassination in Washington, D.C. of a political activist, Orlando Letelier, Letelier, by an agent of the Chilean secret police in D.C. Americans didn't like that too much. Chile tried to publish the names of 119 Chilean leftist opponents, publish it in Argentina, they publish it in Brazil, saying they'd been killed in internal disputes of between the left wing. They had died in left wing fighting, trying to cover their tracks. Indeed, when Pinochet eventually goes to trial, that information is going to be used against us because they could establish that people working for him planted those stories in the newspaper, ergo, they knew that they had disposed of those people. Because otherwise, in both Chile and Argentina, you have this problem that nobody talked about anything. These are horrible events. Why talk about this stuff? Well, I think um, you have a recent book from Jared Diamond out, and he talks about how he was studying various countries, and Chile is one that he mentioned. 
what did happen in Chile was the Latin American country with the longest history of democracy, century and a half, spiraling into a military dictatorship unforeseen by my Chilean friends. I moved to Chile in 1967, and my Chilean friends explained their country to the visiting American by saying, we are not like those other Latin American countries. We are democracy. We know how to govern ourselves. That was their expression. We know how to govern ourselves. My Chilean friends didn't foresee what was coming up in six years, but Chile was drifting into a breakdown of political compromise. Americans, what do you think about breakdown of political compromise? And in Chile, breakdown of political compromise led to a military coup in 1973 that Chileans expected the military government to stay in office just a couple of months and go back to democracy. But instead, the military government stayed in power for 17 years, smashed world records for sadism and torture. You know, it's pretty common for, in our politics, for an actor to take a position. People in entertainment are very often involved in politics. And it's also just as common for the pushback on that. In Chile, it's taken to an extreme. Really, one of the country's top movie stars, Carmen Bueno, um, Carmen Bueno, was reaching fame as a modern, you might say, Hollywood-looking Chilean film star. Studied film and drama at the School of Arts in the Catholic University of Santiago. She had already acquired some fame and was well-known in the country. Her films would have been seen. On November 29, 1974, while working on a documentary for the Peace Committee of the Chilean Churches, Carmen and her camera person, Jorge, were forced into a car and abducted by agents of the infamous Direccion Nacional de Inteligencia. That's DINA. It's a Chilean agency. Pinochet starts it, and it's modeled after the Gestapo. Their families can't find out anything about them. Um, agents from DINA go to the parents' home and try to find information about Carmen from them. You know, try to create, like, a story. Oh, we're looking for her. But two former prisoners... That had been released, soon said that they saw Carmen there. Very bad physical condition, being carried by two men. Subject to beatings, torture with electric currents. For several weeks, she was taken to a daily basis to torture sessions and brutally raped. Indeed, as a survivor of the Chilean detention centers, Erica Hennings, who was detained for 17 days, recounted. They got a special kick out of trying to denigrate or destroy women. This is the 1970s. It's the beginning of any kind of movement for women's rights. They had special places that the Chilean army nicknamed the discos. They weren't discos. They were detention centers. Detainees were blindfolded and music was blared nonstop so that they could drown out the sounds of torture. Beatrice Batasu still remembers it 50 years later, seven days of torture, seeking to break the morale of female activists to send a message to others. Pinochet lasts a long time. This is the thing. The Argentine um, junta is done by the mid-80s. Pinochet lasts till 1990. He's never truly prosecuted for it. He is eventually arrested when he goes to the UK and then to Spain. He's never fully... um, Convicted because he dies. How quickly it can happen. 
and also how it can be covered up and the lengths that people will go to and the dehumanizing of people. These are all things that are shared by all of the various Latin American juntas. And of course, it's a warning sign for any kind of totalitarianism that might be set up. You know, beware. <laughs> beware of a person saying, I'm taking emergency control. Beware of a person that's saying, um, we have to do this because there's a group of people that they label as a name and they're no longer humans. And don't worry, um, you normal people, we won't be going after you. You know, and there's so much focus about the Nazis and Nazi Germany, but that happened in the 40s. This is an example that 30 years later, they were able to recreate some of this in a different place. And now I bring this up, or I also have to acknowledge that I'm relaying all of this at the time that there is another World Cup. And I by no means are talking about Cutter in when I'm talking about this. This is an episode, the first episode aired four years ago. We were talking specifically about Argentina. It is worthwhile to mention that Cutter is not a democracy, and it's 313,000 Qatari citizens and 2.3 million expatriates do not have the same rights that people in the United States have. It at different times has controlled newspapers. The emirs appoints the one that appoints the prime minister and cabinet. When the emir goes... He'll select an heir apparent. Now, 30 of the 45 seats on the advisory council are filled through elections every four years. The emir appoints 15 of them. The elections have been postponed over the years, so then members are appointed anyway. Um, in 2017, the emir just appointed 28 members. Really haphazard. So I would not say that Qatar, Qatar is a democracy. Women can run for office, for municipal office. There are some women on the advisory council, but they have very little opportunity to organize independently as women or form groups or advocate for their interests. Uh, they re Qatar receives very low scores from Amnesty International and other international places. I think I'll stop there. I want to thank you for listening. Um, the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics. And if you enjoy soccer, association football, as we say it in the United States, and football in the rest of the world, I hope you enjoy the game. Thanks for listening.